0: The following audio is from Life Center Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au Well, if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, we are in a series of the moment where we're walking through the Old Testament. And we're spending about eight weeks uh, walking through the Old Testament, giving uh, giving a bit of a tour of the of the main points of the Old Testament, just to give us confidence that when we open God's Word, we we can actually understand what it's saying, we can actually understand what its meaning. And uh, we're, we're in week number six of that. Um, so, uh, in the first week, we looked at. Uh, Genesis and the, and, the, and creation, the Garden of Eden, where God created uh, a place. He created a people. He created His people to live in His place under His blessing. And then sin came along, and sin ruined that. Sin wrecked that. And so God set about pr- repairing that. God set about set about putting that back together. And in week number two, we learned about Abraham and God came to Abraham to to reiterate this promise and to say, this is going to happen through you and your descendants. And then we went to, in uh, the third week we went to uh, data, uh, sorry. Joseph, sorry, went to Joseph on the third week, looking at how God's people left God's place, left the promised land of Canaan and went into Egypt where they ended up enslaved. Then week number four, we looked at Moses and how Moses was the one chosen by God to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt and to take them out of Egypt into the desert and to learn what it means to be God's people. And then last week, we looked at Joshua and Judges and Ruth And saw how, actually, saw the the moment where God leads his people into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua and to drive out the Canaanites that were living there before them. And then we saw last week that Israel started that mission, started that job, and then didn't quite finish it. And we were left with uh, the state of things at the end of, uh, the end of Judges, where, where every man was basically doing according to what his own heart desired, and there was no king in Israel. And we left last week saying, hey, th- there's now space for a king. That's what th- the end of Judges holds us up for. Today, we're looking at the story of David. And there is um, just so much that we can consider for David's life. David is undoubtedly one of the most important characters, one of the most important figures in not just the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. Uh, His his story takes up a a large chunk of the historical books. Um, He authored many of the Psalms, and it's safe to say that Israel and really the the rest of the world uh, is not the same after David. In fact, if you're reading 2 Samuel and you're reading about David, after that point in the Bible, you could almost pick up the Bible and, and flip to any place after that and only go maybe four or five or six pages without seeing David's name somewhere there. So when it comes to looking at David and, and the, place that he, the, the role that he plays in the overarching story of the Old Testament, um, there's lots of material to choose from. But we're going to be focusing on one specific moment from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as I've been preparing this this week, I've become amazed at how wonderful this chapter is. Like, I knew it was good, but this week I've just been like, wow, this is really, really amazing. This moment is undoubtedly the highest point in David's life. And it forms one of the highest peaks, if not the highest peak, in the Old Testament. And that's because in this moment, God makes a covenant with David and the Old Testament suddenly becomes laser-focused with expectation of this covenant being fulfilled. Everything comes into a, a great deal of clarity at this particular moment of the Old Testament. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just reading to begin with verses 1 to 3, and we're just going to walk our way slowly through this, through this chapter. When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies... The King said to the prophet Nathan, "Look, I am living in a cedar house while the Ark of God sits inside of tent curtains." So Nathan told the king, "Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you." So when we read that the God had given David rest on every side from all his enemies, that should mean something to us, especially if you were here last week. Last week we looked at Joshua and Judges that driving out the inhabitants of Canaan was a job that Israel started but didn't quite finish. And well here, it looks like it has been finished. It looks like God has actually given David rest from all his enemies and he was settling down into his palace. It feels like the promises of God to form his people and bring them into his place under his rule had finally come to pass. It finally become accomplished. But as we read on, we'll, we'll learn that this fulfillment is maybe only a partial fulfillment. It isn't quite yet the case. Now, it might not be the case because those early, these verses that we just read, that was from David's perspective. Some theologians say that. Other theologians say, well, maybe actually that David at this stage doesn't quite realize the fullness of what God was promising here. Which is, That's what I suspect to be true. But David is feeling uneasy. He's in a house of cedar. It's a big, beautiful, lavish palace. It's beautiful. But the ark of God is in the tabernacle. It's in a tent. And so David talks to the prophet Nathan. And this is the first time we come across this guy, Nathan, the prophet. And Nathan says, go and do what's in your heart. It seems like a good idea to go and build this this temple that David had in mind. But we can't be so sure. Reading from verse 4. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken to a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, Why haven't you built a house of cedar for me? See, even though David's heart was seeking to honor God, he had made the mistake of thinking that God's thoughts were his thoughts, that God's ways were his ways. And that's a really important thing for us to remember. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's significant. I was having a bit of a, I will say a tense interaction last night with one of my children. And my, that particular child, I won't say who it is, um, but his name starts with B and it runs with Danjo. Um, we were having a really great conversation where, I, where he was being fully rational about all of his thoughts and all the things that were going on in his, in his mind. And I say that sarcastically. He wasn't being rational. It was a completely irrational thought. And what he was saying made complete nonsense. Now, my ways are higher than Banjo's ways by about a meter. God says, my ways are above your ways as, high as, as far as heaven is from the earth. That is no one knows how far that is. That, that's to say, that's just, let's just remember that God's ways are better than our ways. Our ways. God's thoughts are better than our thoughts. That's, just, if that's all you remember from today. That's a good Sunday. And it looks like David had been learning this lesson already. If you go back and you read 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's a story of where David tries to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem. So David gets the ark, which bears the name of the Lord. And he puts it on a new cart, pulled by an oxen. It seemed like a good idea at the time. But it ends in tragedy and death. If you ever know the story of Uzzah, and the, the, the cart, cart's walking along, and there's a pothole, and it looks like the ark's going to stumble, and Uzzah puts out his hand to stop the ark, and Uzzah drops down dead. And everyone who's reading the Bible at that stage goes, what? You see, God's ways are better than our ways. And David is, has to learn that his thoughts are not as good as God's thoughts. Even though his thoughts are to honor God with a new cart and this oxen, God's ways are better. God, what God has prescribed is better than what, what David wants. So, David, sorry, sorry, God had prescribed that the ark should be carried by priests who are carrying it using poles, not an oxen pulling a cart. And David should have known that. And then here, the same lesson is being learned God had prescribed the ark to remain inside the tent. And David, even though his heart seems to genuinely want to honor God, he has disregarded what God has prescribed. The ark, it it bears the name of the Lord. It's the the symbol of the presence of God amongst his people. But God is not confined to the ark. God is not confined to the tent. The, The tent is less about a house for God and more about a way for God's people to approach God without being incinerated by his holiness. And it seems that God is still coming, so it seems that David is still coming to grips with who God is. And aren't we all? Like, isn't that good news for us, that David's still coming to grips with that? Like, I'm still coming to grips with who God is. Like, if you're here and you're thinking, no, I've come to grips with who he is, I've I've worked it out, you're a dummy. Like, I love you, but you're a dummy. You haven't quite worked out who God is, and you don't know that yet. But be patient, you'll work it out. Maybe not. So God's reply to David's plan here is, David, I've never required this of you. I love the idea that you want to build me a house, but I don't require it of you. And God's going to actually instruct David's son Solomon to build that temple um, in 1 Kings. Then God gave instructions to Nathan to say the following words to, to David. And these words shape this chapter. begin to shape this chapter into the very important place that it holds in God's word. Nathan says, So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done, ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, there's a there's a lot in there, but one of the questions that we should ask as we're reading through the Old Testament is how does this contribute to our overall understanding of the Old Testament? How does this enhance our view of it? Well, our understanding of the Old Testament is enhanced by this passage, by the fact that even though those very important things had actually come to come to pass, God's people living in God's place under his blessing, even though these things had already come to pass, it's apparently only partially fulfilled. You see, it says in verse 1 that the Lord had given David peace on all sides, and in verse 9, I have destroyed all your enemies. But then in verse 11, he says, I will give you rest from your enemies. Israel were already in the land at this point. But God says, I will designate a place for my people and plant them. God had already blessed David with great fame and prestige as he rose to power. God had already risen the name of of Israel and Abraham to great prominence. And then yet God still says, I will make your name great. There's these three I haves and these three I wills, and they seem to correlate. It seems that although these promises have been fulfilled, there is still more to come. Imagine you're a kid on Christmas Day, and you open up all your presents, and it's been a good year. You know how there are some years that it's just your parents just nail it, and it's fantastic, and you know, it's like it's a good haul. Like, that's a, yeah, that was, that was a good year. And then just as you open up your, your last present... Your mum and your dad say, there's one more present, and it's a puppy. Or it's something incredible, like it's something absolutely amazing. They bring it out, and whatever it's wrapped up in, it's like, that's, that's even better than all these other things. Like, you could have just given me that. You could have led with that, and it would have been amazing. And that's kind of what 2 Samuel 7 is doing here. God is saying, I fulfilled all my promises. I've given you the land. You are my people. You have multiplied. The promises made to Abraham have become fulfilled. But God is saying, hey, there's still more. There's still something wonderful happening here. And and this is how God's prophetic word comes to us. It's often fulfilled at more than one level. At this stage of the story, Israel had become God's people. They were living in God's land. They were under his rule and blessing. And yet God God starts making these promises here that there's something even better in store. And what God has in store is something that is permanent something that is eternal, that God himself will establish and can't be ruined by mankind's faithfulness. He's he's talking here about the kingdom of God that can never be taken away. You see, this promise to David is a critical hinge in the storyline of Scripture because it begins to point to the one who will fulfill this. It promises that this is going to be fulfilled in one person, one who would be called a son of God. And he will come from the line of David and he and his kingdom will be established forever. And this is what the remainder of the covenant promises. The Lord declares to you, reading from verse 11, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever." We've been asking the question, how does this part of the Bible enhance our view of the Old Testament? And now the question I want to ask is, how does this part of the Bible enhance our lives? How does this part of the Bible uh, bless us? You see, we always want more than just useful information. We, we, we want to, to actually see the blessing of God for us in this. And fortunately, there's a lot here. You see, Jesus fulfilled these promises. That's the bottom line. Jesus fulfilled these promises. But he didn't fulfill them just so that the equation could be balanced and they could say, yes, it's been fulfilled. And we could stand back and say, oh, that's nice. Jesus fulfilled these promises because of his great love for us, because of God's great love for us. This is indeed how David interprets this promise. We're not going to get to verse 17 and onwards to, to David's response to this. But if, read, if you read verse 18 and 19, David acknowledges there that this, this promise, it isn't just for him. And it's not even just for his near future, it's for his distant future. He says this revelation is for all of mankind. So let's look at what we, I've just read out there. There's a, bit, there's a lot there, there's quite a bit of overlap, but I've boiled it down to three main points for, for us to understand. So firstly, first point, is that God's going to build David a house. Now, that's kind of funny, right? Because that's how the chapter started. David wanted to build God a house, and God said, no, I'm going to build you a house, David. And we've got to understand there's two different houses there. The house that David wanted to build for God was a temple. The house that God was going to build for David was a dynasty. It's going to be his kingly line. David. God was going to make David's name great, amongst the greatest in all the earth. And this was going to happen through a dynasty, a line of kings that would come from David's own body. And there would be one, a descendant of David, whom God would raise up and God would establish his kingdom forever. And this is a continuation and a sharpening or a focusing of the promises of God to fix what sin broke. As we trace trace the promises of God to right all the wrongs of sin, we see that each time it's getting more and more specific, more and more clear as we go. So in the Garden of Eden, God promises that someone from the offspring of Adam and Eve uh, would strike the head of the snake, and the snake would strike his heel. Now we know, because we got the benefit of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that that was referring to Jesus. Then in Genesis 12 and 15, we get a bit more specific that the person is going to come from Abraham's family. And through Abraham's seed, God would bless the whole world by forming a people to live in his place under his blessing. Then, in Genesis 49, when Jacob, who was uh, Abraham's grandson, was blessing his sons, he gets to his fourth oldest son, uh, Judah, and says the, the, says the scepter will not depart from, from Judah. Now, that probably would have been quite cryptic back then, but it becomes crystal clear in this promise to David, who was from the tribe of Judah. David is promised a dynasty of kings from his own body. And from this dynasty, God would raise up one servant, one descendant, who would establish his kingdom and he will be the king of the world. He, this, this one who was, who was going to come would be a son of David and he would be a son of Abraham. And if you flip a few pages forward to the first page of the New Testament and you open up to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, it begins like this an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Isn't that rad? Like, that's really cool. And this is why we're doing this series. Because if you don't understand what the Old Testament is teaching about this one who is to come, you'll read Matthew one. you you'll go, oh, that's nice. Like, like Abraham and David, they sound like good. I've heard of them from, from Sunday school. I remember those guys. And Jesus is one of their descendants. Matthew was saying so much more than that. He said, no, this is the one who came to fulfill those promises to Abraham and to David. And when you, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it's really important because it shows how it goes through Judah as well, that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. And if you look at the genealogy uh, in Luke's gospel, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve as well. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of this all the way through. In other words, this promise from God to David shows that the one who God would send would be a king and would be the king to end all kings. And this promise that God would provide a king for Israel that becomes the basis of hope for Israel from that point onwards. Every time you read in the, in the prophets where, where Israel's is going through a tough time where they've been unfaithful over and over again, this promise that God would send one from, the, from David's line to sit on David's throne and to rule forever, that was the basis of their hope. The, the prophets kept looking back at this, regardless of how terrible things got, they kept looking back to this promise to, to David from God and going, God's going to fulfill it. God's going to send a king. He's going to send someone who's going to make everything right again. And he would fix what was broken in the garden. And he would fix the hearts of God's people who just keep breaking things. So point number one is that God is going to build David a house. Point number two is that God will establish his kingdom forever. God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. His house and his kingdom will endure before him forever. His throne will be established forever. It's an eternal throne, an eternal house, an eternal kingdom. Very strong emphasis on the foreverness of this this promise. Now we've just learned that Jesus is the king and now we're learning that his kingdom, his rule will be forever. And when we encounter Jesus in the Gospels, his ministry can largely be summed up around the establishment of the kingdom of God. He came to teach and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. Each healing was his kingdom invading into the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of darkness, he was, he was pushing back against evil. And, and central to that was Jesus' invitation for sinners to come and become citizens of God's kingdom, kingdom come and be a part of the, the, the people of God. You see, the kingdom of God is forever. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's eternal the kingdom of God is not a place that you can visit and not a location that you can see. It is everywhere and is invisible. And one of the most striking things that I find in God's Word is in Acts 1:8, 1, one, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Jesus commissions his disciples to continue the mission of being His witnesses by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he tells them in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit is coming upon you, and you will be my witnesses, get this, in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what he's doing there, he's starting in Jerusalem, he's drawing these concentric circles, going outwards, That he's sending the disciples outwards, away from Jerusalem, out to the ends of the earth. Now this is Incredible. If you've been tracking through the Old Testament and you've read, you've been reading how just how long it's taken for Israel to finally get to the land, how long it took, how just the, this, the immense difficulty it took to actually get there, and then when they got there, they failed over and over and over again, and eventually got, they got evicted from God's land. They finally came back and they're in God's land, and they're in Jerusalem, and they've got this place that they're in with God, but it seems like it's not really quite fulfilled, and it's not really theirs. They're under the rule of of foreign powers, and, and it feels like they're waiting for this king to come along and finally make things right and give them their land back. What does Jesus do? He sends them out away from the land. And it's not that this land, it's not that he doesn't have a place anymore. It's that the place isn't Jerusalem anymore. The place is Caloundra. God's place is Namibia. God's place is South Africa. God's place is Brazil. The place isn't about a central geographical location anymore. The place is actually with God's people. God's kingdom is an invisible kingdom. The kingdom is not just in Jerusalem and Judea. The kingdom is now going out to the whole world. And where God's people go, they are to continue this mission of building the kingdom of God, proclaiming the good news about Jesus, that anyone can become a citizen of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your wealth or your past or anything. Each one of us can become a child of God. Each one of us can become the citizens of God and come under his rule. This is what we were created for, to be in God's presence, to be his people under his good rule. third point is this. He will build a house for my name. God says that the offspring of David, this king, would build a house for God's name, and that God would be his father and he would be God's son. Now, I'm treating those two parts of the the promise there together because they come back together in Matthew 16 in really remarkable ways. So God says that the offspring of David will build a house for his name. Now, on one level, this is fulfilled with his son Solomon, who was the one who God chose to actually build the temple. Uh, this is again one of those times that God's prophetic word is filled on multiple levels. And it's why we can, it also says that when he does wrong, I will discipline him. I was referring to Solomon. But we also know that he's talking about Jesus. He will build a house for my name. God also says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, when... We, when he's talking about that, he's not so much referring to Jesus Christ being God's son in terms of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the God's, um, God, God the Son. Rather, this was the way that Israel spoke of or regarded their kings as sons of God. And these two things, Jesus being God's son and building a house for God's name, come together in the most spectacular way in Matthew 16. In the, it, it, they come together with electric clarity. Now, I never actually saw this until this week as I was prepping for it, and I've been really excited about this all week. In Matthew 16, we get the very famous moment where Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. When Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So when Peter refers to Jesus as the Son of God there, He has in mind, quite likely, 2 Samuel chapter 7. You are the king. You are the Messiah who was promised to us. You are the one that we've been waiting for. And then Jesus replied, and before I read to you Jesus' reply, remember, the son of God, the king, was going to come and build a house for the name of God. This is what God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus replies to to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, there's going to be a, a descendant of yours who will come, and he's going to be the son of God. And he will build a house for my name. And in Matthew 16, Peter calls Jesus the Son of God, and Jesus says, You're right, and I'm going to build the church. I'm holding back tears right now. I just feel so, this is unreal. That all those years ago in Jerusalem, Nathan's talking to David, the message that God gave to him, and he's talking about the church. Isn't that just unreal? That, that Jesus came to build the church as the as the house for God, the, the house that God promised. Can, can we just let that blow us over for a moment? The house that Jesus was going to build for God, for the name of God, is His church. And Jesus says of His church, He says, "The gates of Hades they will not overpower it." Now, Hades is another name for hell, and, and just pay attention that it's the gates of hell. My friend Adam Ramsey, is a pastor on the Gold Coast, and he says, gates are not an offensive weapon. Like you don't see soldiers going into battle with a set of gates. Gates are a defensive weapon. By saying that the gates of hell will not overpower the church, Jesus is saying that the activity of the church will be against hell itself, and hell will not be able to defend against that kind of offense. You see, the ministry of Jesus is not just summed up in his birth and his death and his resurrection. Some people make the mistake of assuming that all Jesus did was come along and die for us. Yes, he did that, but he also lived for us. What did Jesus spend his time in ministry doing? He spent his time teaching about the kingdom of God, healing the sick, driving out demons. He was establishing his kingdom by pushing back the forces of darkness and revealing what it's like to be citizens in the kingdom of God. And you and I, we have this invitation from Jesus to come and be one of God's people, to come and become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And being a citizen in God's kingdom means that everything changes. Being a citizen in God's invisible kingdom means that life is now different for you. You're no longer just a citizen of the world. In fact, the world, you feel like more of a foreigner in the world because of your citizenship in heaven, your citizenship in the kingdom of God. And everything begins to change. Living in the kingdom of God is living under a different kingship, under a different rule, under a different king. And everything starts to change for us. You drive differently in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, you're not the center of the universe. And so you start to think of the other drivers and the road, not how they can get out of your way, but actually what's going on in their lives that's causing them to drive so slowly. And you're freed up to stop thinking about yourself. And now your mind has this energy because you're not thinking about yourself anymore, you can think about others and you're freed up to look at the people around you on the road, and you can look at the person who's driving very, very slowly in front of you, and you can't get around them, and you think to yourself, "Yeah." in the old kingdom, in the kingdom of this world, we used to say, get out of the way. Now we go, actually, what's going on? We think, maybe, maybe they've got a cake. Like, you drive slowly when you've got a cake in the front seat, don't you? Or maybe they're having a really rough day. Like Maybe they just found out some really terrible news. Maybe they've got just a really bad back and just driving at that speed is just the only thing they can do right now just to not let their back get any more exacerbated. Maybe they're just distracted. Maybe this is the only time they have to get out in the road and drive and it's scary, but this is the, they're, in, they're still holding on to their independence and they're just getting down to Coles, getting their groceries done and heading home. Whatever the reason is, when you're in God's kingdom, you drive differently because you start to think of that person as someone who is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated as such. And it also makes you be patient with the person who's right on your tail, right up behind you. And you don't think of them as a mean, terrible, ugly jerk. You start to think of them, maybe they're actually on their way somewhere and they need to get there urgently. Maybe they're running late for a meeting and they can't afford to be late to this meeting. Like whatever it is. Like whatever it is, you drive differently in the kingdom of God. You spend your money differently in the kingdom of God. And instead of seeing all of your money as yours and spending it on yourself, suddenly spending money on yourself becomes kind of, ugh. Like you can't explain it, but you just your, your, your heart and your mind and your generosity and your wallet starts being lent towards people who are without. And everything changes in the kingdom of God. The way we spend our time, the way that we are patient with others, the way we treat other people, the way we worry or don't worry, that all changes in the kingdom of God because God is king. And this is what Jesus came to establish. He came to drive back the forces of darkness which have been operating since the garden to separate people from God. The forces of darkness which operate to to pull God's people back into slavery. The ministry of Jesus was to set the captives free, and our purpose as a church is to continue that ministry as an outpost of the kingdom of God. Our ministry as a church is to be, is to be standing against the powers of darkness that separate people from God. This is why we want to look at the culture around us. And we want to look at the things that are wonderful about our culture and go, fantastic, that's really great. And then we, look, then we look at the things that separate people from God, and we want to stand against those things and call those things out. You know what I think separates people more than anything else from God here on the Sunshine Coast? Comfort. I think that's just one of the most sinister weapons in, the, in our enemy's arsenal. Comfort. I think that there is nothing that is more sinister or undermining or, yeah, it's horrible. Now, is there anything wrong with comfort? No. No. But the moment we start being convinced that because we are so comfortable that we don't need God anymore, then it's death to us. It's poison to us, and we want to call that out. And so when we gather together as Christians, when Christians gather together as God's people, we're making a powerful statement that we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. When Christians come to church on Sunday mornings, we're saying, I'm not going to hell anymore because Jesus Christ has rescued me and I want to celebrate that at least once a week with other rescued people. That's what we're doing in church on Sunday mornings. That's what we're doing right now. I want to celebrate with God's people. Why? This isn't just a random coincidence. We're not just, we are celebrating right now the very clear reality that God's plan to rescue his people from the power of sin involved sending his son, Jesus Christ, who was the one true king descended from Abraham and descended from David. And he established his kingdom on earth by driving back the forces of evil to make it possible for, citizens, for God's people to come into his presence. So how does Jesus do that? How is that that invitation? How do we become citizens of the kingdom of God? Well, all we've got to do is keep reading Matthew 16. Jesus then says, well, Matthew then writes, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. How are sinners rescued? The king had to die. The king had to die in their place. This is the only way that sinners could come into the presence of God and be reconciled to God after they had rebelled against him. Jesus had to take their punishment on their behalf as their substitute. But after he died, God raised him up. God raised him from the dead three days later. Many people saw him. And then he ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God, and there Jesus remains. Jesus is alive right now. Jesus is still on the throne. Nothing has changed. Nothing can change that. And his kingdom endures for eternity because he is alive right now. That's why we declare with great vigor that Jesus is alive. And God did all of this because of his great love for mankind. Like, isn't that stunning? God didn't do this just so he could show that he was a very, very clever God. He is a clever God. He is holy and that we might worship him and and, and glorify him. And that is the ultimate blessing for us. That is the ultimate thing for us, that we actually glorify God. See how how wonderful he is. That is the best thing that could ever happen for us is to know more of God. He did that because of his great love for us. Friends, being a citizen of God's kingdom, that's available available to us right now. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then you're not a citizen of God's kingdom, but that is available to you because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That by putting your faith in him, you become one of his people. Maybe you, right now you're, you're looking at the way you drive or the way you spend your money and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm not really, I don't really, act, I'm not really function or acting as if I'm one of God's people. Friends, if that's you, just look back at the cross again. Look at, look at the invitation there is from Jesus and know that it's not actually, it's actually all on him that we come to and we become saved by him. We are saved by him, by his grace and what he did for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.